Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear from the committed people who are leading the biotech industry. Physician entrepreneur Dr. Jeremy Levin chairs Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization, and also works on the rare disease Angelman syndrome. Jim Greenwood, the CEO of Bio, asks what's the right thing to do about the price of drugs and everyday people, while Bio Vice Chair Paul Hastings is also the CEO of Encarta Therapeutics. With Senior Vice President Nadir Mahmood, they're working with natural killer cells to fight cancer. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, UCLA professor Jared Diamond talked to me about his book, The World Until Yesterday, What We Can Learn from Traditional Societies. What happened 11,000 years ago was the origins of farming which meant enormous increase in population because from a wheat field you get far more food than gathering in the forest. But once you get a large population, you start encountering strangers. You need a government. You can support a government. You need laws. And you have formalized wars rather than chronic wars. So stuff changed beginning 11,000 years ago. But there are plenty of societies that in modern times still do not have centralized government to remind us of what traditional societies were like. Now, the lives and the goals of humans, you know, before and after, as you read your book, you realize they're not that much different. They, that's to say people in traditional societies, they have children, they have arguments, They have old people that they have to deal with. There are dangers that they have to be aware of. They have religion. They have languages. They have multiple languages. Yeah, so they have these common human problems, which means that no matter how exotic they seem, maybe we can learn from them. And let's start with the role of older people, Um, you know, in terms of value within the totality of society. I mean, that, that certainly has changed. Yeah, that has changed. The most obvious change in the value of old people is that traditionally, before there was writing, old people were the repositories of information. If you wanted to learn something, you asked an old person. Today, if you want to learn something, you look it up in a book or newspaper or turn on the radio or you Google it. So that means a big loss in value of old people. Well, it's interesting as well. I think it's not just the facts. It's the is what maturity brings you in terms of the consequences of things and the importance of being together and, you know, a whole lot of things that doesn't really come through in the Google facts. That's true. And I, at age 75, am not going to end that discussion by saying that old people have lost a lot of their value. They've gained in value precisely because the rate of technological change today is so rapid. It's perfectly true that I can't turn on my television set. I have to call my sons to talk me through the wretched 41-button remote. But it's also true that conditions have changed so markedly, but some of those old conditions could come back that, for example, it's only older Americans who know the experience of a world war or a Great Depression. And that's a value that old people have 
even more today because of the rapid rate of, of change, which means it's only the old people who have experience of conditions that could come back. Some characterizations of traditional societies continue through the modern era, and, and certainly if we take China as an example, here's a society in which the elderly were very well respected and has been a tradition. You point out that's beginning to erode. My Chinese and Japanese friends tell me that there have been big changes in the last several decades in China and in Japan. I believe it was the case until maybe the 1950s that Chinese had an obligation to care for their old parents, a legal obligation. That's no longer the case. In Japan, my wife has Japanese cousins, so we know a good deal about life in Japan. Fifty years ago, the majority of marriages in Japan were arranged, not by the couple, but by the relatives. Now, as in the U.S., people date and they arrange their own marriages. But ironically, in Japan, this shift from an arranged marriage to a negotiate-yourself marriage has coincided with the arrival of electronic media, which means that young Japanese lack the social skills. And my wife's cousin told us of being in a restaurant in Japan where there was a couple obviously there on their first date, and they were very shy, and they were opposite sides of the table. They weren't talking to each other. They were texting each other because they hadn't <laughs> learned the social skills to talk with each other. You perhaps know UCLA professor Jared Diamond Best as the author of 1997's Guns, Germs, and Steel, or his first book, The Third Chimpanzee. I was able to speak with Professor Diamond about the world until yesterday on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we hear from Dr. Jeremy Levin, who chairs BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. A physician entrepreneur, he describes the biotech ecosystem from biopharma to tiny biopharma startups. Jim Greenwood, the president and CEO of Bio, has a plan for controlling the price of drugs, protecting everyday people. And Paul Hastings, the vice chair of Bio and next year's chair, is also the CEO of Encarta Therapeutics. With senior vice president Nadir Mahmud, they tell us about engineering natural killer cells to fight cancer. And now, Dr. Jeremy Levin. Jeremy, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Moira. It's a pleasure being here. Now, you've been a physician at university hospitals in England, in Switzerland, and in South Africa. From your perspective as a physician, how is it different in those three environments, if you will? And how is it the same? It's important to say that it, it's more what is the same it is the patient that is the same because when you're in a bed, when you're lying naked, when you're suffering, every single individual, doesn't matter what, how much they, money they earn, what kind of family they come from, what their background is, they're identical. They need you. So as a physician, 
what was critical to me was to understand that I could change the course of their lives by helping them. And they were there in front of me because they needed that help. So it doesn't matter, Switzerland, England, South Africa, the same thing, whether you were doing this in the bush, whether you were doing this on the top of a mountain with somebody who just crashed with a ski, whether you were doing this in Great Britain with somebody who had just had a car crash or was having kidney failure or was having something else, the same thing. Help them. You've been in many places globally in the pharmaceutical industry, in the biopharmaceutical industry, Bristol-Myers Squibb. uh, You were the president and CEO of Teva. um, And in one of your positions, you were the global head of strategic alliances for Mighty Novartis, pharmaceutical company. Is that number two, I believe? One or two? Does it matter? It's sort of watching the football scores. Who won this week? Um, And the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, very famous in there in in all of the, uh, of the world, uh, as well as all of their many research areas around research centers, shall I say, around the world. Why would Novartis need strategic alliances? So, Moira, I've been spent over thirty years now in the industry. I've gone from a big company to a tiny company, and. What's really interesting is to ask the question, what is the ecosystem that surrounds all of these companies that feeds and nurtures the pipeline that they need so desperately to help people? And if you think about it, there are literally hundreds of thousands of researchers in all around the world trying very hard to find new medicines. In each company, they can only afford to have A few researchers, they don't have that many. Yes, they spend a lot of money researching, but they can't encompass everything. So what they need to do is reach out beyond the walls of the company to the society outside. Now, that part of the society could be an academic center. It could be, for example, a researcher in the NIH. It could be a researcher in Duke, a researcher in San Francisco. It doesn't really matter. They reach out to an academic and say, "Can we're really interested in your research. And they'll form an alliance. I formed over 600 of those in Novartis. Then they might do something else. They might then reach out to a large or a small biotech company who've got really passionate scientists who've already taken something from a university or have discovered it in their own labs, and they've nurtured it. They've really dis- they've said, how can we find a drug? And they may have already found a drug, or they may be on the way to finding a drug, or they may be on the way to finding a new genetic therapy or something else that is not already inside the big company because the big company cannot develop all of these different things. So an alliance brings together the ecosystem, the little guys really feeding and nurturing a pipeline. And that's important because over 80%, 80% of all drugs today come, start in that lower level of the ecosystem, the small guys who go in every day, they fail, and they start another company, they succeed, they have a partnership. And if they're fortunate, sometimes they're able to take that them, this themselves. But big companies know they are utterly dependent. And actually, it's a codependency between the two sectors, the small guys and the big guys. And that's why they form them. And I've done many. 
They make a huge difference. I'll give you an example, if I may. Please. Best example I can think of in Alliance was in Bristol-Myers Squibb. In Bristol-Myers Squibb, 2007, was in crisis. It had its stock prices down, its products were limited. It didn't know where to go. It was trying to find a direction. And so they brought together a team, including myself, to reshape the company. A core part of that reshaping was, in fact, what's called the biopharma strategy, a strategy of alliances that you'd put together to reinvigorate the pipeline. And amongst that was, we, I coined it, the string of pearls, a string of wonderful relationships that could regenerate and reinvigorate what the company had. And what was very brave about Bristol-Myers Squibb now recognizing that I'm so devoted to technology and new things, Bristol-Myers chose to do something remarkable. In 2009, against the backdrop of all other companies saying, well, we're interested in cancer, but it's going in this direction. Bristol said, no, we want to ignite and change the way we treat cancer. We want to do that by getting the white cells of a body to attack a cancer. That's an area called immuno-oncology. At that time, 2009, there were only 10 clinical trials, 10 trials in all of America trying to work out how to do that. Bristol said, no, we're going to do an alliance with a company called Medirex, small little company in New Jersey. We're going to help them build this. And when we're confident, we'll buy it. And I, we, I actually executed the transaction to buy it. It was a remarkable step. We had for the first time a hint that you could cure melanoma. At that stage, melanoma patients survived for five months only. Once you took this drug into Bristol, Bristol then invested in it. They invested in the company. They got the great skills that were within that small little company who stayed with Bristol. And now today, guess what? People with melanoma have the real hope with those medicines that you can live for five years or more. So in a short period of 10 years, we've gone from living for five months to potentially living for five years, all because of an alliance that turned into an acquisition. Another fact for those who don't know this area, it's wonderful. The whole area of cancer was transformed, not just Bristol. The area of cancer was transformed by a brave alliance. What happened? People said, wow, that looks kind of interesting. Why don't we try it? So we went from 10 trials in 2009 to 50 in 2011 to 2,500 today. And the whole field of what I called immuno-oncology has broken open. It all started with a tiny little startup and an alliance. That's correct. And that alliance was a big risk. Very big risk. It might not have worked. Many of my colleagues said, well, if, will you resign if you buy this? And it doesn't work. And I said, of course, yes. This is the chances you have to do. You have to take these chances. If you don't take a chance, if you aren't bold in looking and breaking open new fields, you'll never go anywhere. We'll be left in the Stone Age. Who was the first person in the Stone Age who picked up a stone and said, I'm going to make an axe? Joe. Joe did it. I'm pretty sure. Wasn't it Joe? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he was watching a monkey. Don't they do that? <laughs> I don't know where it or was. she was. <laughs> a monkey's doing something pretty interesting. And then they, of course, took it. Innovation is 
is humanity here. What's so important for uh, people to hear that is they think there's big, huge biopharmaceuticals. They've got companies. They've got you know big stone walls around them, and they do everything. And then all these little companies starting up, and researchers and universities. And they're like, well, whoever those guys are, you really built us a great picture of how the eco, the total ecosystem works. And of course, now you've, you're in New York, you've returned to the startup space. Ovid Therapeutics, tell us about that. When I left Teva, it was a big step. Teva was a company that provided one in six of all of the medicines, pills in America. There were tens of thousands of employees, hundreds of plants, And you knew one thing, and I knew one thing, that we could provide really great generics to everybody. When I left it, I went back to my roots as a physician. I wanted to take on diseases that nobody had ever successfully conquered. I wanted to take on a disorder that wasn't in cancer, a disorder because there are many people now in cancer. I wanted to take on a disorder in the area that I felt was completely novel, an area that people were a little scared of. And that's diseases of the brain. And the way I wanted to approach that was to say there are rare diseases. In fact, there are about 100 different rare diseases of the brain specifically. And my hope and aspiration was that I could attack them one by one and successfully find a medicine to treat the families with them. It turns out that the first one that we attacked was Angelman's. Angelman's is a disorder, 4,000 or more families in the United States. Each family with a child, which arrives a beautiful child in birth, you can't predict it. And yet that child then suffers from inability to walk, inability to communicate, inability to handhold their food, and most extraordinarily, the inability to sleep. And this goes on for years. And then they have epilepsy. And there are no medicines. Each family here, they treasure these children. They have to look after them. So my goal was to ask the question, how could I help them? And so four years ago, well, a little bit more, four and a half years ago, we set up Ovid with the intent to not just deal with angelmans, but sequentially to deal with multiple of these diseases. And the, the program in a, today is now entering phase three, That's the last stage of testing. We're very hopeful. We had very encouraging results on our phase two in adults and adolescents. And if we are successful in our phase three, which starts after July, we will have the first medicine ever. And it's my hope and aspiration, just like when I was a physician, to change the lives of these families and the individuals with Angelman's. So it's not just the individual. It's the whole family that you want to affect and help. Now, remembering that most of our listeners are not really scientific, can you give us just a some hint as to how your medication works? Sure. Angelman is, occurs when a gene is switched off. When that happens, a very key functioning of the brain stops happening. It's the ability to distinguish signal from noise. Just imagine, Moira, if you're sitting in a room and you can't, you can hear everybody in that room, the clock ticking as well, and all is equal. It's a cacophony. You'll never be able to distinguish what's important. 
Similarly, when you touch yourself, you won't feel the difference between touching somebody on the shoulder and a hit. It's the same thing. Signal to noise is critical to be able to function properly. So our drug fixes that. Our drug turns on a protein, uh, allows a protein to be turned on in the brain that allows you to moderate and to improve signal to noise distinction. And when you do that, what you, our goal is to see that walking improve is to see the talking improve, is to see many different aspects of the life of that individual improve. And it's very difficult because you have to affect, you have to understand that that gene is turned off in every single of the billions and billions of cells in the brain. It's not one cell, it's all of them. So you have to get a drug to all of them. You have to then turn them all on at the right way. And then you have to watch and adjudicate how that child now starts to improve. And we've been focused on that for five years. The mechanism is all about being able to bring you back to what is the norm, or at least try to bring you back to what is the norm and therefore improve all of it. This reminds me, actually, of my younger sister, who was born with very crossed eyes and had to have a series of operations over time to finally bring them in line. Delayed speech... Uh, delayed communication in that way. When the final one happened, and this was about perhaps three and a half years old, a time when kids were really pretty much jabbering along, she had a word or two, you know, a cookie, whatever, and she had this uh, operation. And uh, she came home, they took the, the bandages off, and suddenly... Within about three days, she was speaking in complete sentences. She was, I was like, what's going on? And the doctor actually told my mother, she, he said, well, if you see a table, and then the next time you see a table, and it's good, is that, you have no pattern. You can't see the pattern. And he said, she, she finally could see, well, that's like this, like this, like this, within 72 hours. It was amazing. So if this is in all these different systems in your body, it changes it immediately. That's correct, Maury. You've got it in one. The whole point here is that if you're blind and you get a little bit of light, it's a revelation. But then you can do so many more things. If you can't hear and then suddenly you can hear a little bit, and you don't have to hear 100%, a little bit, your life changes. Now, with these children, if you can begin to ignite, give them the ability to sleep better, Give them the ability to hold their tools better. Give them the ability to walk better, to dress. Allow their parents to sleep as well. <laughs> what will happen is the kids will start to learn. You'll want them to learn more. They'll become more capable of looking after themselves. And instead of, you know, the real hope is instead of them having to go into long-term care 24-7 uh, care in facilities at 18 or 19 and live through the next 50 years in those care facilities, that you'll give them the ability to seize control of their life if you can start to change and bend the curve of the disorder, just like your sister. Probably will never get to being able to fully do what happened to your sister. But as I said to you, a little bit of light for somebody who's blind is a world. And what we need to do is we need to bend that curve. And then hopefully, over time, complete cures will come along. I'm not sure about that. I'm hopeful that it will occur. But that we are now well on track with our 
clinical trials to at least begin that process of changing their lives. You've just started as of a was it an hour and four minutes ago, something like that, <laughs> to be the chair of BIO, B-I-O, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Tell us what BIO is and tell us what being the chair means and then, of course, what you intend to do. <laughs> Moira, that's a great one. Bio is a unique organization which represents the interests of all of the small innovative companies in biotechnology in the United States and increasingly around the world. Biotechnology is a strategic asset of the United States. United States leads the world. This is the place, the most important place in the world where biotechnology was given birth to, where it created some of the greatest discoveries, sequencing the human genome, and now even... it. Now we're nearly 20 years later, but we're going into gene therapy. All of the companies that, are, uh, that help do this are called biotechnology. They're all unique. Each one is a different type of uh, area. So what the, we do is we help and focus our interests in both what, what bio does, the industry organization, it focuses, it learns what the interests are of these organizations, whether it be getting immigrants from abroad to help populate them, whether it be increasingly getting legislation passed in Congress or in local, uh, well, in local part of the, uh, uh, in local, in, in municipalities. states. In municipalities. We work on those to facilitate it. And I think the most important thing for me, as I, as I consider leading it, I believe there are two aspects of what we do. Number one, we have a covenant with a patient. That is, we need to take the risk. We need to help our member companies take the risk. These little companies take the risk, go out there, ensure that there's a capital market that will help them, ensure there's money to, that they are able to raise money themselves, and then to make sure that they've got the patents to protect their medicines, and then ensure that they have the time and people to get there. Take the risk. That's our covenant, and that covenant says to the patient, we're going to get you the single best medicine we can. The next part is the compact with the society. We have a compact with society. There's no doubt about it. This compact is to make sure that once you've got these medicines, you're actually able right there to get access to as many people as you can. So what this means is you need to ensure that it's affordable, that there's real value in what you're bringing to the table, and that you are going to commit to the patient to ensure that they get what they need. And there's another side to this. We don't ignore trends. We must and we will, bio does, involve themselves heavily in thinking about things that affect millions of Americans beyond the, the medicines. An example of that is the crisis around opioids. And we have committed and will commit completely to helping contribute and solve that crisis. So there's two things a covenant with the patient to be bold, to find the best, and then the compact which says we're going to make sure that you get access and then in addition to that, making sure that where we can bring all our skills and capabilities to fix disasters that are there. Well, Jeremy, this has been fantastic. I hope you come back and see us again. It would be my pleasure. Thank you for the time, Maura. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeremy Levin, the chair of BIO, 
the Biotechnology Innovation Organization and the CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. More information is available at ovidrx.com. That's O-V-I-D-R-X.com. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Jim Greenwood, the president and CEO of Bio, has a plan for controlling the price of drugs, protecting everyday people. And Paul Hastings, the vice chair of Bio and next year's chair, is also the CEO of Encarta Therapeutics. With Senior Vice President Nadir Mahmood, they tell us about engineering natural killer cells to fight cancer. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. There's no biotech industry without science, and while science is evolving rapidly, it's a very challenging world right now. Jim Greenwood is the president and CEO of Bio, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Well, what I like to say is, um, yes, the, the science has never been better. And you can sort of say that all the time because the nature of science it, is that it builds upon itself. But I do think we're at a bit of an inflection point right now in, in terms of things like what we can do with gene therapy, cell therapy, immunotherapy, CRISPR, at gene editing, all of those technologies. Um, we had just had our very first ever gene therapy approved by um, by the FDA from Sparks Therapeutics right here in Philadelphia. Um, but at the same time, the political challenges have never been more severe. And the, we are oh, at a really existential moment uh, between the president's, some of the president's plans, a lot of the legislation that's moving through Congress. We could really stop this, this innovation in its tracks, which would be the crime of the millennium because there's so many patients who are so desire of us of, of us succeeding with our innovation. So um, we're up against it. But um, so it's, it's a real fight. and We're going to fight it. In what way are they looking to stop it? So some of the worst ideas out there uh, are uh, people complain about the fact that drugs cost less in Canada and Europe than they do here. That's absolutely true. The rest of the world free rides on us. However, there's a reason for that. It's not because our companies voluntarily discount their prices overseas. It's because 
we're the only market-based program in the world, right? And so that's why we innovate 57% of all of the drugs in the world in Canada and in Europe and in other places like that. They have single-payer systems. Parliament passes a budget, says this is how much you get, health ministry, and this is how much you get for drugs. And so when our companies go over there and negotiate, they say, well, we're not giving you $1,000 like you get in the U.S. We're giving you $600, okay? Well, so what the administration said, well, that's not fair. I mean, you know, President Trump is always about we're getting taken advantage of by this country or that country. So basically they have this proposal where you're going to take for the Part B drugs, the injectable drugs, the biologics, you're going to take 16 countries, take an average of the prices for all these different products, and then we're, going, we're only going to pay 125 percent of that in the U.S., right? Sounds like a good deal. It's, like, but the, it's not the deal. It's the average of the deals. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and, and not only that um, – the, the 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 fact of the matter is that um, the our companies sell their products there at a lower price, but the margin it would never be enough to uh, support investment into this highly risky um, enterprise, and so. Um, the president is on the one hand railing, you know, we hate socialized medicine and he's ready to mount his whole campaign about, you know, we're against, you know, a single payer system. And yet here he is trying to import single payer system prices into the United States and it will kill innovation. So let me tell you what I think the solution really is. When people say they're so upset about the price of drugs, what they're actually upset about is what do they pay? What comes out of their pocket, right? People don't really care what the drug costs. They care about what comes out of their pocket. You have half of the of the plans that are supported by employers. Half of the people who have health insurance that comes from their employer have large deductible plans. So now you're paying, you know, maybe $3,000 out of pocket, right? And in the Medicare program, which I helped to create, the, the Medicare prescription drug program. When you were in Congress. When I was in Congress. Um, we have, of the 44 million people, um, beneficiaries, about a million of them are paying more than $3,000 a year out of pocket, some five ten, fifteen thousand dollars out of pocket. That's morally wrong. Right? These are people who have paid into the system their whole lives. They're living on fixed and limited incomes for the most part. Average income, household income, $29,000. And now we're asking them, you have cancer? Oh, could you, could you please fork up twelve grand? right? We can't, if, if, a, if a drug costs $12,000 and uh, you have a $3,000 deductible, you have to pay $3,000. Use every price control in the book and cut the price in half to $6,000. The patient still has to pay $3,000. So we can't price our way out of this dilemma, okay? So what we're trying to do is to get Congress to put a cap on the out-of-pocket expenses for Medicare. So that say basically $200 a month, that's it. That's all you'll ever have to pay, which would be an enormous benefit to them, taking them out of that fear of of either going bankrupt or not being able to afford the medicines. It would be a huge political coup for the Congress and the president to be able to do that, to say you were at risk. And it's a million people a year that are in this box, but all of them are at risk for it, right? Yeah. So to be able to say to, to for a member of Congress, to be able to write their constituents and say, you'll never have to worry if you're in Medicare because you're disabled or because of age, you'll never have to worry about that again. So that's... That changes the entire future right. for these people. Right. It does. And, and all the people coming in in the future. Right. And it is and, – and, and our industry should be willing to step up and help pay for it. And we will be. We'll negotiate about that with the health plans. We think they should pay for it, some of it as well. But we're, we're prepared to do that because it's the right thing to do. So – and then people will say, well, what about the rest of the people who aren't on Medicare, who are on commercial insurance? Well, 
My answer is, if we do this, we fix this for Medicare, we'll get some data. First off, what happens with adherence? How many more people are taking their drugs because they don't have these, these exorbitant out-of-pocket costs? Two, what does that for, do for healthcare spending? They're not going to be hospitalized as much, right? Um, they're not going to see doctors as many times. So you'll actually save money in the system. And what does it actually do to the, the cost of the program as a whole? I will argue that it, it will, the effect will be negligible to the cost uh, of the program as a whole. So then that data can be applied to the commercial sector. Sure. And either insurance companies could say or employers could say, well, you know what? Maybe a high deductible makes sense. You know, if you twist your ankle and you say, hmm, should I call an ambulance and get taken to the ER? That's like 5000 yeah. bucks, right? Or wait a minute. This is coming out of my pocket. Uh, call my next door neighbor and ask her to take me to a, a uh, urgent care center at Walmart or something, right? Yeah. Skin in the game makes sense there. Skin in the main right. game makes no sense with medicine. None. Nobody's ever said, oh, it's free. May I have another dose of chemotherapy, please? <laughs> right? <laughs> they don't go down and ask for yeah, it. You don't, you don't consume more medicine because it's, it's inexpensive to you. You know, maybe if, it's, if the question, certainly if the question is between generic or brand, yeah, skin in the game matters there. Um, if we're talking Botox, you know, okay, it's, a, you, it's up what? to the patient. Right. <laughs> Whatever that is. That's free, uh, right? right? <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I think we have to get, we, we, we have a responsibility to the payers, be they public or private, but our first responsibility is to the patients and, the, and what they pay out of pocket. If we can solve that problem, we can figure out how to pay for it. We're, we're, we will prevent these draconian approaches um, of price controls of all kinds, and innovation will live on. It's about being a society. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even people say, well, what if the, what if the, the uh, premiums were to go up a bit? Well, I think that's what insurance is for, right? It's, insurance is not supposed to be a thing that, oh, I got sick, now I'm broke and bankrupt. It's more like, you know, let's all share the, 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 the risk so if we do get sick, we're okay. First original idea I've heard in a long time. Well, thank you. Congratulations, Jim. We want to hear more about it in the future. I hope yeah, you come you back will. and see us. Of Perfect. course, anytime. Thanks. Jim Greenwood is the president and CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. More information is available at bio.org. It could easily be argued that there is no disease area where the biotech industry has been more relentless than in fighting cancer. Bio Vice Chair Paul Hastings is the CEO of Encarta Therapeutics, and Nadir Mahmood is Encarta's Senior Vice President. Well, Paul and Nadir, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Mara. Thank you. Thanks Pleasure to be here. Actually, welcome back, Paul. Thank you. And for the first time ever, Nadir, it's great to see you here. Thank you. So I go out to the Encarta Therapeutics website, and what comes up but the words, all in caps, the power of natural killer cells. And there are these two ugly, hairy cells up close and personal. Well, you got my attention. There you go. That's, that was the whole purpose. Is that it? Now, what are these natural killer cells? So let me give you the layman's interpretation of what a natural killer cell is. So these are cells that are a part of your natural immune system that survey your body and look for abnormality. So they look for abnormal cells that are either virally um, affected or have are associated with tumors. And they'll find these cells and they'll go out to destroy these cells. And they're doing it constantly. And they're doing it constantly. And what does that have to do with Encarta Therapeutics? Right. So Encarta Therapeutics is we're using natural killer cells, and we're actually engineering these cells, making them more potent, more persistent, 
and more targeted so that they'll be more efficient at going after specific tumors and taking care of those tumors and um, helping patients live longer lives. Uh, In this case, these are particular cells, and are they part of the immune system? They are. Yes. Okay, and they exist now, and, and what we're trying to do at Encarta is have them go after cancer when we know you have cancer. Right. We're actually giving patients uh, NK cells from other sources to help boost their natural immune ability to go and kill tumors with their natural killer cells along with the natural killer cells that we give them. Now, this is part of this whole arc of immuno-oncology. And it was just a few years ago where we started to see headlines that said, and we'd hear it on the radio, we'd watch it on TV, we'd read it, and it would be like, oh, we got this down, immuno-oncology, we got your immune system, and it's just going to be solving all the cancer problems in just a few years. But it hasn't. It's like everything else in science. It takes longer and costs more to develop therapies for cancer. The good news is that some immuno-oncology agents did make it to the market. They are treating patients. A second generation has also made it to the market. So these original immuno-oncology agents called checkpoint inhibitors made it to the market, have been very effective in certain forms of lung cancer and now new uh, cancers, including uh, blood cancers and solid tumors, are treated with checkpoint inhibitors. They're combining these checkpoint inhibitors with other investigational checkpoint inhibitors as well as with traditional chemotherapy to make the lasting effect of these longer. And then the next generation was the, the first cell therapies for cancer, or the CAR-T therapies, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. And these therapies just made it to the market. There's three of them on the market now, and they're used predominantly to treat blood cancers, people that have blood cancers. And they're used in patients who have failed multiple other chemotherapies and haven't responded and have been very successful in helping those patients survive longer. I think what we're starting to understand is just how our immune system works in our bodies in a manner that really allows it to identify cells that have gone awry, right? This is part of the basic function of the immune system. And there are different components to that immune system and different cell types that play specific roles. And we're starting to see technologies around these different types of cells emerging. The most advanced, as Paul mentioned, was these CAR T-cells, Right? T-cells are a class of immune cell that play a particular role, and NK cells are another type of immune cell that play a very specific role to go out and seek and destroy cancer cells. But historically, we haven't been able to really leverage these and harness their power fully for therapeutic purposes. And what Encarta is doing is essentially enhancing and really exploiting their inherent potential by modifying them in a way that we can now use them as drugs to have more profound, lasting effects for patients. Now, this is based at some level on the research of the wildly productive uh, Professor Dr. Dario Campana, who has had a magnificent scientific career. What exactly did he do in the NK cell area? When when Dario was at St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital, so he's a pediatric immuno-oncologist, a researcher as well as an MD. He worked on the CAR-T cell therapies and actually was very instrumental in bringing those to the marketplace and to patients who needed them. And so that was his first foray into the uh, biotechnology space, was starting uh, um, companies that were involved with CAR-T therapeutics. And the next thing he was researching in his labs were these other cells called natural killer cells. And it made sense to him to take a look at 
what can we do if we engineer these natural killer cells, since he had actually used some of these sort of unmodified earlier versions of our NK cells to treat certain pediatric patients with, with certain hematologic or, um, sorry, um, blood cancers and had some effect in these patients. We realized that, like with the original CAR-Ts, these therapies need to be enhanced and needed to be improved upon, and that's how we started NCAR Therapeutics. Now, when we say enhanced or improved upon, what do we mean by that? So we're really talking about genetically modifying the cells so that they now have new features or new attributes that allow them to be more potent, better targeted, last longer, but really introducing in new components to these cells that they otherwise wouldn't have. Like? Such as targeting... Like what? <laughs> so CAR-Ts, for example, the CAR in CAR-T is chimeric antigen receptor. So that is a particular type of way in which the cell can detect signals that are expressed and produced by cancer cells. We can introduce the same types of constructs, concepts into NK cells. We also modify the NK cells so that they stick around longer. So they are known to be supplied by certain growth factors or molecules that enhance their growth, allow them to grow and proliferate and be active. And so what we're able to do is actually express this growth factor on the NK cell itself. So now it's essentially got its nutrient supply right there when it needs it, and it can continue to grow and expand and be active in the human body. And is that what you mean by persistent? That's right. Yep. Makes it last longer, and then we target them as well. And the nice thing about NK cells, again, T cells don't necessarily distinguish between a tumor cell and a non-tumorgenic cell, so there are some side effects that go along with these T cell therapeutics. They're managed, uh, and they're managed appropriately by physicians as they treat the patients, but NK cells seem to hone in directly on the tumor. And so we can engineer them to look at different targets on the surface of that tumor to go after, to be as specific as they normally are, and even more specific now with the engineering that we provide for them. So that engineering helps target them, and it also helps keep them around longer so they can have their effect longer in patients so that we can actually dose these NK cells like you would an antibody or other cancer therapeutics every couple of weeks. Now, are these my killer cells, or am I getting a generic killer cell from someone else? Well, so here's universe? the good news. I'm going to ask Nadir to expand upon this, okay? So with CAR-T therapies, the current CAR-T therapies are on the market. Uh, the companies go and get the T cells from patients, extract them from the patient, bring them to the lab, expand them, and then re-inject them into the patient. So it's an autologous therapy, meaning it comes from you, the patient that has the disease. Take your T-cells, engineer them, grow them up, replace them into your body. What we're able to do is grow cells from other sources, other donors, so that these cells are available immediately and off the shelf. So we don't need the patient's own NK cells. We can enhance their NK cells with off-the-shelf NK cells. So much like a pharmaceutical in a vial, that's produced and ready to be dosed in a patient rather than have them wait a couple weeks, because many times these patients are severely ill. So our NK cells are modified, engineered NK cells that come from a different source than the patient, but can be used in multiple patients with hopefully different tumor types as well. What do you do to these cells so that they can go in any body, Nadir? Well, the, the really unique thing that stands out about NK cells versus T cells is the fact that their biology is just different in the way that they recognize and kill other cells. So T cells require 
the cells that they're going to target to come from the same immune system, right? If you do have uh, cells from a different immune system, from another individual, for example, they will still promiscuously kill the healthy cells, right? So you get cancer cell killing, but you also get healthy cell killing. So that's what's called graft-versus-host disease. NK cells are different. They don't recognize the same signals that T cells recognize. They actually recognize specific signals expressed by cancer cells. So they don't need to be originating from the same, you know, immune system or immune environment in order to work. So that means you can go and I can use my NK cells to kill your tumor and vice versa. So really allows the, the biology itself is what allows this to happen. But you now need to be able to leverage that and actually scale and make sufficient quantities like you would uh, any other therapeutic drug. And so that's where Encarta's what we call expansion technology really comes in. So this is our ability to take a small population of NK cells that come from apheresis. So when someone gets donates blood, right, a small percentage of those are NK cells, usually not enough to dose another human being as a therapy. But what we can do is expand them using our methods, our technologies to where from a single donor, we can generate hundreds to thousands of doses, really changing this concept and paradigm or limitation in the cell therapy field, which has been one patient back to the same patient and sort of literally limiting your ability to, to scale and get any kind of you know, improvement in, in the manufacturing. And that expansion technology came from Dario's lab, and uh, we licensed that technology. We now have patents or intellectual property around that technology, and it's the cornerstone of the valuation of our company, where we have this very unique, very proprietary expansion technology that it can expand these natural killer cells uh, at a level that you can dose a lot of them in patients and have a real strong effect on their tumors. And what I like also about this is at the time they're the, the, the most ill, they need it. You can't be taking something from them. You can't be, you know, there's no time. There's really no time. You can bring it right on the spot. It's good to have an off-the-shelf therapeutic, yes. And, yeah. and CAR-T therapies are going in that direction, too. The so-called autologous CAR-T cells, the next level for those would be to be allogeneic or come from another source. And they're working on technologies to help do that with CAR-T cells, but it's much more difficult to do that with a T cell than it is with an NK cell. Now, you mentioned earlier about well, how long the, the cells will stick around. Will you need to continue to have these cells administered? Over time? We're going to find out. Um, we're going in the clinic next year with our first natural killer cell therapeutic. And um, there's some benefits and some risks to having to dose patients multiple times with these cell therapeutics. They are very potent. Um, the fact that these are not as long-lived as a T-cell, which will hang around forever, which is a good thing, by the way, that kind of adaptive immunity or the ability to hang around and wait for another tumor to come back means the T-cell's ready if that tumor does come back. The NK cell is going to kill the tumor immediately and going to have its effect. So being able to redose it is a good thing. Dose them first, maybe take them through a cycle of dosing, and then look at the end of a period of time to see what impact that had on the tumor. If the tumor comes back, think about redosing those patients. So it potentially can be used and redosed uh, but we're going to find out when we get in the clinic next year. Now, when you say dose, are we talking an IV drug? Yes. Yeah, it's going to be administered via IV um, systemically. 
We're also coming up with some novel ways and particular types of tumors where we can actually deliver locally. So in that sense, it won't be an IV. So we're looking at liver cancer. Patients who have certain liver cancers, we can deliver the cells directly to the liver. And the benefit of doing that is to get more cells right to the source of where the tumor is. In the case of hepatocellular carcinoma or liver cancer, this would be a very positive thing. It can be done with a procedure that is handled by usually a surgical oncologist um, who knows how to do these things and does them routinely. People who have liver cancer get these procedures uh, frequently now uh, without NK cells. And so adding an NK cell is is something that should be very beneficial. And the person that we're working with, the surgeon who has been using this already, has been using it with CAR T cells and having success with it. So it would be a natural thought process to then say, well, let's try this with NK cells and particularly and specifically into the liver. You know, it's a big step when you go from preclinical, from animals into humans. That's a big step. What about the animal studies? How did you go about those? So let me... Let me go back to manufacturing, and then I'll come back to the animal trials, because the expansion technology not only benefits the ability to make enough cells to inject in patients, it also benefits the manufacturing of these cells so that you can make them at a decent cost of goods so that you can actually have, um, you know, cost-effective therapies developed for patients. So our manufacturing folks in the company, and we've got folks that have years of cell therapy experience in manufacturing, This is one of the cornerstones now of startup companies in the cell therapy space that they should have manufacturing early in their process because manufacturing is one of those really important things to deliver cell therapy. So we have a manufacturing group. It's a small group. We're only 35 employees to begin with, but we have a group that knows how to use the expansion technology and to make these cells in the kinds of quantities we will need to to do commercial manufacturing at very reasonable costs of goods. So that's really exciting. Then... You add the animal studies, right? So like with any other therapeutic antibodies or cancer therapeutics, we're looking at models of certain tumors in rodents, in mice, and treating them with NK cells. And so we've done experiments in AML, our lead uh, blood cancer indication, in hepatocellular carcinoma, our liver cancer indication, and sarcomas and other kinds of tumors where we can actually take the engineered NK cell therapeutics that we're manufacturing at a lab scale and even at a clinical development scale and inject them into the animals to see if the tumors of those animals respond to these agents so that that becomes the cornerstone for the investigation of the new drug application that we're filing to be able to put these drugs into humans. So what's your your first line of attack in humans? What are you going to try first? We're going to do phase one studies next year in both blood cancers and specifically in AML and also in the liver tumors, so can't, patients with liver cancer. So we'll be going simultaneously into both blood cancers and solid tumors with our first NK cell therapeutic. Do you anticipate that you'll be using this with other immune oncology products? Yeah, I think as we start to learn more about how these agents work on their own, I think the opportunity to then start combining with other immuno-oncology products or even other cancer therapies is definitely something that we're looking at pretty strongly. We'll start as monotherapy. We'll look for safety. And then we'll quickly pivot to looking for if we combine these in a phase 1B trial with other forms of standard of care, would they actually enhance that standard of care? If you have single-agent activity, that's a home run. That would be great for patients, and that would be awesome. 
And we'd love to see that happen. But you need to plan that these could be therapies that combine with other therapies as well. To make sure that if you don't see, you know, absolutely dramatic, hit the ball out of the park results with the monotherapy, that like with every other disease state, combining therapeutics oftentimes leads to better efficacy and long-term survival. And for some cancers in some people, combining is absolutely essential and not for others. That's right. right. Every cancer is individual, which leads me to ask, uh, I think, my final question, which is, what what is our goal here approaching cancer? The goal with a natural killer cell would be to kill the tumor. I mean, that's why they're called natural killer cells. So if we can engineer these cells to make them better tumor killers, we're actually taking a bad name and turning it into a very good thing, a natural killer cell therapeutic that can help patients survive and live longer, healthier, happier lives, even though they have cancer. That's the, that's the end game. So, so having cancer would no longer mean this is a terminal game. Well, like with the CAR-T therapies and the immuno-oncology therapeutics like checkpoint inhibitors before the NK cells, it's one step in the spectrum along looking for the answers for all the different tumor types. Some tumors are easily attacked by cancer drugs, checkpoint inhibitors, cell therapies. Others are more difficult to treat. Once we treat one tumor and learn how to get the um, herd on that tumor and, and help those patients with that tumor type, we'd start looking at other tumor types and seeing what the secret is of that tumor type. Every tumor has its own way of evading the immune system and evading cancer chemotherapeutics, right? So, so we're always going to be looking for ways to combine agents, to trick the tumors, to eradicate them altogether. So this is the only natural killer that's your friend. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yes. Let's hope so. <laughs> yes, that's the plan. <laughs> that's the plan. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Paul Hastings is the vice chair of bio and the CEO of Encarta Therapeutics, where Nadir Mahmood is senior vice president. More information is available at EncartaTX.com. That's Nakarta, spelled N-K for natural killer. N-K-A-R-T-A, Encarta.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.